morning, everybody. How are we feeling this morning? It's feeling good, good. Well, it's great to see all of you in the room. And of course, if you're joining us on live stream, uh, we also just want to extend a very special welcome to you. Thanks for joining us in that way. And uh, like Grace said just a moment ago, uh, I do just want to take a moment and say that if it is your first time here at Grace, if you're just maybe visiting us for the first time, or maybe it's your first time back in a while, uh, we do just want to extend a very special welcome to you. We're so glad that you are our guest, and we're glad you're able to be with us here today. But if you are just joining us, I do need to tell you, you're actually catching us in week two of a Christmas series that we started last week that's called Emmanuel, as you can see, Emmanuel, Beyond Us and Beside Us. And so just to kind of catch you up to what this series is all about, uh, last week, here's what we said. We said that really our desire over the course of the weeks uh, leading up to Christmas, and and this whole series will go up until Christmas Eve, uh, we said our hope is to really create some space and create some room Uh, in our hearts and in our minds and in our time together uh, to really kind of stop and to think about uh, the message that God has communicated through the arrival of his son, Jesus. And and basically, last week we said this. We said, you know, it's really, really easy. I know I found this to be true in my own life. It's really easy just to kind of go through the holiday season and sort of miss Jesus, right? It's kind of easy to kind of go through the holiday season and kind of get swept up in all that's happening and sort of miss the opportunity to really sort of pause and reflect and to think about uh, the significance of what it is that God has truly communicated to us in the arrival of his son, Jesus. And so we said, hey, we wanna create some space that we kind of together as a church family and as a community of God's people can really kind of create space to do that together. And because for those of us who follow Jesus, And I know that maybe not everyone here is a follower of Jesus, but for those of us who follow Jesus, we believe that Christmas is much more than a holiday. Uh, We believe that Christmas is really, in so many ways, the commemoration and the celebration of the reality that God came to be with us, Emmanuel, that God came to be among us. It's an incredible thing. And here's what we said last week. We said that Christmas, if you really stop and think about it, if you're willing to listen to the message of Christmas, uh, God has chosen to communicate so much about who he is. He has revealed so much of what he is like through the arrival of his son and through the sending of his son. Uh, Last week, we actually said that there's two characteristics that we believe Christmas really helps bring clarity to as it relates to the person of God. And last week, I introduced this to you as kind of a recap. Last week, we started talking about the idea of the transcendence and the imminence of God, the transcendence and the imminence of God. Now, if you are just joining us, I know that those might sound like abstract theological jargon, like kind of at first glance, but I want you to understand that these are actually some very, very, very important terms. So again, a recap, here's what we said. We said, when we talk about transcendence in relation to God, Transcendence means that God is infinitely above us and that he is beyond us. It's the idea of transcendence. And we said imminence is the idea. It means that God is intimately among us and he is beside us. And so there's these two characteristics of God. God is transcendent. He is above us. He is beyond us. His ways are higher than our ways. And yet at the same time, he is imminent. He is close and he is intimately near us. He is both beyond us and he is beside us. Or if we could put it another way, uh, we said it this way, transcendence is God's holy distance. It's God's holy distance. And imminence is God's gracious presence. That he, he is both out of our reach and yet he is so close and so intimately near us. And here's what we said last week. We said, you know, these two ideas, these two characteristics of God 
for us, like in our limited uh, kind of human way of thinking, we said it's really hard for us to put these together. Uh, These seem like they're paradoxical. They seem like in some ways they're almost the opposite of each other. But here's what we said. We said Christmas is so incredible because Christmas actually brings into harmony these two characteristics of God, that God, the transcendent God of the universe, is with us, that the transcendent becomes imminent at Christmas. We started thinking about it. So here's what we're going to do in this series. Here's what we kind of started talking about last week. We said that we want to spend some time kind of processing this and the importance of this. So this week, what I want to do is I want to spend the entire time that we have together thinking about the transcendence of God. What does it mean when we say that God is transcendent? How does that impact the way that we understand him and we view him? How does that impact the way that we view ourselves and we understand ourselves? And how does that kind of impact the way that we celebrate Christmas? Next week, we'll do the same thing with imminence. We'll talk about God's imminence. And then on Christmas Eve, I want to invite you all back because we're going to have a, an amazing time where we're going to be able to celebrate Emmanuel, God, who is with us. So as we start to think about the transcendence of God here today, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and want you to open them with me. We're going to get to Isaiah chapter 6. Okay, so Isaiah 6 is where I want to invite you to open your Bibles. That's going to be found on page 557 if you need to use one of the Bibles under the chairs that are provided for you. And if you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, um, feel free to take one of those. You can just have it, take it home. Uh, We'd love for you to do that. So Isaiah 6. Now, let me just say, as you're finding Isaiah 6, This is an incredible passage of the Bible that I have had uh, the privilege of being able to teach this passage several times over the last several years. And I'll just just tell you, I find myself coming back to this passage often. I come back to this passage often. Um, It's one of those passages that is very unique and it's it's a very important passage. And the reason is because in this passage, what we're gonna see, what we're about to witness, this is one of those unique places where you see a human being, a finite human being, have a raw encounter with the presence of God. Uh, you don't see this very often, but every once in a while in the Bible, you'll see a human being who it's almost like it's almost like they have the opportunity to peel the curtain back and see what's happening in the throne room of God, see what's happening from heaven's perspective. It's an incredible passage. And I just want to tell you, whenever I think of the idea of God's holy transcendence, this is one of the first passages that comes to my mind. And my hope is that you'll see why as we work through this passage. So let's just start together. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. And then after I'm done reading the section, we'll just come back and we'll make some observations. All right, so here we go. Isaiah chapter 6, starting off in verse 1. It says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send Like I said, very famous passage of the Bible. 
And in this passage, you're going to see Isaiah have a raw encounter with the presence of God. And here's what I'm hoping we're gonna see today. Now, there's a lot we can say about this passage, but just for our time today, I wanna invite you to observe with me a couple of things. Here's what I believe we're gonna see, that encountering God's holy transcendence, that when we encounter, when Isaiah encounters God's holy transcendence, when we start to understand God's holy transcendence, it produces something in our life. And what happens? Well, I think a couple of things is this, that when we encounter God's holy transcendence, first off, it reorders our fears. It reorders our fears. And secondly, it reorients our lives. That's what I would invite you to look at with me together. When we come to see the transcendent holiness of God, it reorders our fears and it reorients our lives. Now, before we spend our time and start talking about these two things, I actually wanna first just spend another moment clarifying what we mean when we say God's holy transcendence. I feel like we could maybe use a little bit of clarity there. So when you look at this passage, I think it's gonna help us maybe have a a more clear definition of what we mean when we say that God is holy and God is transcendent. So once you notice in verse one, uh, the Bible's gonna say, Isaiah's gonna say, that in the, the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord. So he has this encounter with God and notice what his encounter is like. He says, when I saw the Lord, he was high and he was exalted. Now, I just wanna note this. Um, the word transcendent literally means high and exalted. That's what the term means. It means something that is high, something that's lofty, something that is beyond us. So Isaiah is having a transcendent experience with God. He sees God in his transcendence. But I want you to notice what it says in verse two and three, because verse two and three, I think adds some clarity to what exactly we're talking about when we say that God is transcendent. So here's what it says in verse two. It says, above the Lord who was sitting on the throne, there were these seraphim, seraphim. Now, many of you maybe know this, or maybe you've heard this before, but seraphim were actually a classification of angel. They're sort of a variety of angel. And more specifically, when you see them in the Bible, uh, it seems as if their function, seraphim, is that they are kind of like throne guardians. So whenever you see the throne room of God, it's the seraphim that you will see who are in the presence of God. And so because um, these angels, because their habitat is the immediate presence of God, God equips them with uh, three sets of wings. And so the Bible says that with one set of wing, the wings, these guys are covering their face. And then with another set of wings, they're covering their feet. Why is that? Well, I think probably, and commentators will say, because their habitat is the immediate presence of the holiness of God. And so they have to be equipped to be able to shield themselves. And so they're, they're covering their feet, they're covering their faces, and with one set, they're flying. But then I want you to notice what the Bible's gonna say. The Bible's gonna say that these angels who are in the immediate presence of God are chanting this refrain. They are singing this chorus over and over again. And I believe that there's actually indication in the Bible that this is the song and the chorus that they have been singing for eternity past and will be singing for eternity present and are singing even now. And what is it? Well, look at verse three. They were calling out to one another. So they're singing this, they're shouting this to each other. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. They're shouting this chorus and this refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I want you to notice, the Bible says that they say this three times, holy, holy, holy. Now, some of you might remember this. Um, If you've been to our church before, we've actually talked about this in the past. In the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament was written in, 
Um, whenever you wanted to emphasize something in the Hebrew language, you would often do that through repetition. So, you know, in the English language, in our language, if you want to emphasize something, there's a lot of ways that we do that. You can underline something, you can bold something, you can put an exclamation point on it. In the Hebrew language, they didn't have those devices. So if you want to emphasize something, you would just repeat it. So you would take the word and you just repeat it again. So one of my, one of my favorite examples of this is in, uh, I think this is just so funny, in Genesis 14, there's this place where it says that these soldiers fell into a very deep pit. That's what it says. It says they fell into a very deep pit. But if you look at it in the Hebrew language, it literally just says these guys fell into pit pits. So it just takes the word and it just repeats it. So the, what they're saying is these aren't your average run-of-the-mill pits, right? These are, these are very pity pits, right? These are the, <laughs> the pittiest of pits. So they, they take a word. And so if you want to emphasize something in the Hebrew language, if you want to say, hey, this is important or this is extreme, you repeat it. Now, here's the thing. If you repeat something twice, that means it's important. If you repeat something three times, that means it is of utmost importance. So get this. This is the only place in the entire Hebrew Bible where something is repeated three times. And what is it? It is that God is holy, holy, holy. This is of utmost importance. This is a characteristic that is overwhelming. Do you guys ever have this happen? Do you ever have it happen when you meet somebody or when you experience something and there's something about that person or there's something about that experience that's so predominant that it almost overwhelms everything else about them and it's the first thing that you realize. Do you ever have something like that happen? So I'll give you an example. It's happened to me a couple weeks ago. Just a couple weeks ago, I was thinking about this. So two weeks ago, I had the very uh, rare and incredible opportunity to go to the Ohio State-Michigan game. And so I had a, a friend of mine, he said, hey, you want to go to the game with me? I got these tickets. And I was like, that's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I got to go. And uh, so we went. And so this is my first Ohio State game. Never been to an Ohio State game before. My first college football game, and it's Ohio State versus Michigan up in Michigan, right? So, uh, so I went, and me and the guys that I was with, we got all of our Ohio State stuff on, and we went up to the Michigan Stadium. The whole time, I just kept thinking to myself, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And I went in there. And, um, but it was, at the Michi- it was at the Michigan Stadium. And if you guys have never been to the Michigan Stadium, it's, they call it the big house, right? And I don't know if you know this, this is the biggest stadium in the United States. It seats over 110,000 people. And can I just tell you that I've never been there, never been there. When I walked in, there was one thing I just kept saying. I couldn't stop saying it. I just said it over and over again when I walked in. And it was this. I just kept saying, like, I walked in, and I was like, this is big. It's like, wow, this is big. I'm like, the big house, turns out it's big. Like, it's really big. And I just, I couldn't help it. Like, I was, the guys I was with, I was like, it's really big. This is big. And we just kept saying it to each other. Big. This is big, big. This is big, big, big. It's big. Right? Now, let me just say, the Michigan Stadium is a lot of things, right? It's blue and gold. It's loud. It's uh, the den of iniquity and the home of Satan. It's, it's a lot of things. But I'm just telling you, if you were to stand in the immediate presence of the big house, the first thing you would be compelled to say is big. You guys, if you and I were to stand in the immediate presence of God in the same way that these angels and that Isaiah did, do you know what you and I would be compelled to say? Holy. Holy. He's so holy. He's so holy. Now, God's a lot of things, man. God is loving God is just, God is gracious, God is kind. 
If you and I were to stand in his immediate presence, we would be compelled to say he is holy. Let me just clarify, I don't think what that means is that God's holiness is greater than his other characteristics. I don't think that's true. I think a better way to say it, the best I understand it, it's more like this. Holiness is what characterizes all of his attributes. So God is loving, yes, but his love is a holy love, right? God is just, yes, but his justice is a holy justice. God is compassionate and gracious, yes, but his compassion and his grace is holy. So that begs a question then, okay, well, then what does that mean? Like, it's kind of a churchy word. What does holy even mean? Well, let me just give you a very simple definition. In the Hebrew language, the word holy is literally the word kadosh. That's how you pronounce it, kadosh. And here's what it means. Set apart, distinct, or unique. That's what it means. You wanna know, you wanna know what, what holy means? Here's what it means. Different. God is different. He is unique. He is set apart. Here's the idea. Remember we said it earlier. Transcendence is God's holy distance. Now by distance, we don't mean that God is geographically far from us. That's not what we're saying. We're saying he is nothing like us. Listen, God is, here's what we mean. God is matchless. He is uncontested and he is unparalleled in every way. He is infinitely above us and he is infinitely beyond us. He, he, he is beyond what we can comprehend. There is no category that God can fit into in the human mind, right? He, he, there's no way that we could control him. God, listen to me. God is not a little bigger version of us, and he is not a little better version of us. God is entirely in a category of his own. I mean, even right now, I'll just be completely honest with you guys, I feel woefully inadequate to try to describe to you what limited words could never express. God is holy. He is unique. He is not like us. He is other and he is set apart, entirely unique. So what happens when we start to understand that this God is a transcendent God, that he is a holy God? Well, I think when we, get, when we begin to, as much as possible, recognize this truth about him, the first thing that happens is, is it begins to reorder our fears. It begins to reorder our fears. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's important that I mention this, especially if you're someone who's investigating um, Jesus, if you're investigating your faith. I think this might be a helpful thing for you just to be clear about. Following Jesus and, and giving your life to God does not remove fear from your life. It, it doesn't. The better way to put it might be this. When you begin to follow God and you begin to make him the center of your life, it actually reorders your fears. It reorders your fears. I wanna show you something I think is really fascinating. It's easy to read right past in this passage, but I think it's a very, very important little detail. Look at verse one again. Now, I want you to notice that Isaiah is gonna tell us that, that not just that he had an encounter with God, he's actually gonna tell us when he had this encounter with God. And when did this happen? Well, he says, it happened in the year that King Uzziah died. That was when it happened. Now, I know for you and I, we read right past that. We don't think twice about that. We don't know who Uzziah is. This means nothing to us. But I think it's an important detail. And here's why. Who's Uzziah? Okay, Uzziah was Isaiah's king. He was the king of Judah. And he was the king who led, get this, for 52 years. He was a king that reigned for 52 years. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting. He actually was a really powerful and a really good king. Uh, you can read about him in Second Chronicles 26. 
And we're going to be told that underneath his leadership, the nation experienced incredible security and victory and prosperity. He was, a, he was a very, very, very good king. And now the Bible tells us that this was the year that King Uzziah died. So I just want you to imagine for a moment the amount of national fear and insecurity and anxiety, not just Isaiah was feeling, but the whole people, the whole group of people were feeling. All I'm trying to say is this was a time of high fear, of high anxiety, and high uncertainty. You know, I think we live in a different time than Isaiah, but I think that you could actually probably make a pretty good case that right now we live in what some people will call a climate of fear. Uh, fear and anxiety are very real parts of the time and place that we live. We have fear over all kinds of things, anxiety over all kinds of things. Uh, we fear for our own health and our own safety. We fear about our food. We want to make sure we're eating the right food. We fear about our health. We fear about our future. We fear about our economy. We fear about the state of our nation. We fear about the state of the world. We, we see the events that are happening around us. We find ourselves so often full of fear. What's strange about this, though, I've, I actually thought about this. What's strange is that even though we live in a climate of fear, we, we live in a time and a place that's physically safer than ever before. Please ever think about that. Our food right now is safer than it ever has been in the history of humanity. Uh, we have right now, our homes are safer than they could ever be. We, we have the best security. We have the ring cameras. We can watch, we have cameras, we can watch everything. Right? I mean, you guys think about it. We have, right now, we have more access to, 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 to like medical advancement and healthcare than anyone has in the history of humanity. We have, our kids wear helmets for everything. I mean, gosh, I don't know if you guys were like this, but growing up, I don't even think I owned a helmet. Like, I just walked around mildly concussed all the time. It was just the way that we lived. This is sort of how it went. And we wised up since then, but we're, we're physically safer than we've ever been before. But what's crazy is we're more fearful than we've ever been before. And there's so, it's so much of us, we're driven by fear and anxiety. Isaiah lived in a time that was a climate of fear. But I want you to notice that the Bible says that it was at this time and it was at this place, Isaiah, when, the king, when king Uzziah died, he's gonna say, I saw the Lord. And what was the Lord doing? Notice this. He says, the Lord, was sit- he was sitting on a throne. He was sitting on the throne. What, what, did you, you catch what Isaiah just said there? Here's what Isaiah just said. In the year that the earthly king died, I saw the real king. I saw that when everyone was freaking out about the state of our nation and what are we gonna do next, I had a vision and that God was on his throne, which means what? He is ruling and he is reigning and he is in control. This is the picture that Isaiah has. And, and what, what happens as a response to this? Well, the response in verse five is he says, woe to me, woe to me, I am ruined. Now, what does that mean, woe to me? Well, some of you have translations that say this, cursed am I, I'm doomed. Why, why would Isaiah say that? Well, here's why, he says, because I've seen the king. I've seen the true king, I've seen the Lord Almighty. Clearly, Isaiah's response, you guys, is one of reverent fear. He sees God, and his response is one of reverent fear. I just need to mention this too. Isaiah's response to the holy transcendent God is very consistent with the response that you see of other people who experienced God in this way. Let's give you a couple examples of this throughout the Bible. Ezekiel, he he had a very similar uh, kind of encounter. When he sees God, look what he says, when I saw the glory of the Lord, I fell down on my face. Or how about Job? Some of you guys are familiar with Job's story. 
Job had an encounter with God, a raw encounter. And then he says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust. I cannot get lower. Uh, What about uh, John in the book of Revelation? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. So over and over again, what are you gonna see when people have an encounter with the holy transcendent God? You're gonna see that a holy God produces a holy fear. There is a holy fear that comes when we encounter a holy God. Now, let me just say, I think that for some of us, when we talk about the idea of fearing God, some of us sometimes have a hard time with that. Some of us, for, for some of us, quite honestly, we don't have a category for that. What does it mean to fear God? Some of us think to ourselves, well, wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to love God, not fear God. But the interesting thing is, when you read the Bible, uh, you're gonna see that over and over again, there's over 300 verses in your Bible they're gonna talk about the importance of fearing God. So for example, the Bible's gonna say this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's another place where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. There's another place where it says the fear of the Lord is our joy. There's another place where it says the fear of the Lord is our sanctuary. So the Bible's gonna say we can't have a real relationship with God without fear being a part of that relationship. And yet, here's where it gets confusing. There's other places in the Bible where God says, fear not. There's places where God says, don't be afraid. There's places where God says, come to me boldly and don't be afraid to come into my presence. So it can be confusing for us. Are we supposed to fear? Are we supposed to not fear? In fact, let me just give you one passage that I think you see this tension at play. So this is in the book of Exodus, all right? And back in Exodus, God is coming on, the, on Mount Sinai to uh, interact with his people. And I want you to notice the people's response and I want you to notice what Moses says. So look at this. This is when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain in smoke. So you get this picture in your mind. Very transcendent experience. God is coming to meet these people on the mountain. It says, when they saw this, they trembled with fear. They were terrified. And then they stayed at a distance And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. So you see what they say? They said, they're so scared. They're like, Moses, you talk to us, not God, because God scares us. And if we talk to him, we'll probably die. So look at Moses's response. This is crazy. Moses says to the people, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Did you guys just catch that? In the same breath, Moses just said, don't fear God and fear God. Don't fear God, why? So that you can fear God. And you're like, which is it? I think honestly, we could use a little bit of clarity here. Well, I think, I think that all of us could probably admit this. We, we could probably all agree that there is such a thing as a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. And this is true for everything. Everything in this life, there is a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear of that object. Uh, parents know this really well, so I'll give you a small example of this. Uh, this past summer, my wife and I have four kids, and our youngest is a five is five years old, and his name is Louie. Okay, so Louie uh, this summer wanted to wanted to learn how to swim, so he sees his sibling swimming, and he wanted to learn. So, um, so I I did what a lot of you probably do when you if you have kids and you teach them how to swim. I did this with all my other kids. I said, okay, so you want to learn to swim? I said, here's what we're gonna do. So I got in the pool. And I had Louis stand on the edge and I took off his floaty and I said, I just, I, I just, let's just start here. I just want you to jump into my arms, right? You guys have done this before. So he jumps in my arms. He's a little bit scared, but he jumped in my arms. I put him back on the, 
edge, and then I took a step back. I said, okay, I want you to jump in again, and he did, and I caught him, and I took another step back, and eventually you get to the place where uh, he's, he's outside of arm's reach, so it requires that he has to swim a little bit to get to you, and, and anyway, Louis was getting pretty good at this, and uh, eventually I kept taking a step back, taking a step back, and he started to swim a few yards. He could swim for like a few yards, and so every time he did, I would celebrate him. You know, Louis, you're, so, you're doing such a good job, man. Look at you. You can swim. You're such a big boy. And, of course, my, my wife is celebrating him, too. We're doing this whole thing. Well, that went immediately to Louis's head. So he started to get very confident, overly confident. And so we would go to a pool. We'd go somewhere there's a pool, and Louis would run right to the edge. And we would go, Louis, you got to stand back. You have to wait till mom and dad are in the pool, or you have to have your floaty on. And he'd go, I can swim, though. And, we've been, and so I realized, I'm like, he needs to have some fear of the water. So I knew what I needed to do. And so I, uh, I got in the water, and he was, you know, he's like, Dad, I can swim. I'm like, okay. I'm like, let's, I'm like, let's do this. So he jumps in the water. I, I'm like, come on, jump in. He jumps in. He swims for a little bit, confident, and then immediately he starts to lose his steam, and he sw- sinks to the bottom because it starts to go down. And so rather than scooping him up immediately, which is what I would typically do, I let him go down for a few minutes, <laughs> not, not uh, moments, just until it was, I just knew it was the right moment. I pulled him back up, and the moment I pulled him up, I could see in his eyes. I could see it in his eyes. The fear was there. Now, why did I do that? Did I do that to my son? Because I want him to grow up and have to go through counseling because he's, like, going to have an unhealthy fear of the water for the rest of his life. Is that what I'm trying to do? No, no, no. The reason I did it is not, to, is not so that he had an unhealthy fear. It's so that he would have a healthy fear so that he could properly, properly relate to and enjoy the water. I did not do it to decrease his joy. I did it to increase his joy. I want him to have a healthy fear of the water. That's how you enjoy the water. Right? So I think that that's a really important idea. Uh, there's a uh, Bible teacher. His name is Michael Reeves. And I love, the way, I love the way he said this. Michael Reeves wrote a phenomenal book, by the way. It's called Rejoice and Tremble the surprising good news of the fear of the Lord. It's a really fantastic book. But in this book, he says this statement. I want you to try to get your mind around this. Think about this with me for a minute. I think this is a really profound statement. Here's what he said. The right fear of God, right? A healthy fear of God is love for God defined. That's an interesting statement. Here's what he says. The right fear of God, to fear God with a healthy fear. To, to fear God in, in, in a healthy way is actually the love of God defined. Now, what's he trying to say? Here's what I think he's trying to say. I think he's trying to say that sometimes we believe that love and fear are incompatible. But in reality, I think the truth is we're gonna see that they are not opposite. They're actually necessarily linked together. I think maybe one of the problems, one of the reasons we have a hard time tying the love of God to the fear of God, I think one of the reasons is because of the way we use the word love. We use the word love for everything. It's just kind of a junk drawer term for us. So just give you an example. If I was to say, I'm gonna give you three statements, all of them are 100% entirely true. Let's just say, and just take them all in sequence. Let's just say I said to you this, I love Culver's cheese curds. It's a true statement. I love my wife. I love my God. Now, all three of those things are true. They're all true. But my guess is that if you just take them back to back, you feel a little bit 
There's a little bit of tension there. Why is that? Because you're like, I, I hope you don't love those things in the same way. And if you loved your wife like you love cheese curds, there'd be something real wrong with your marriage, right? Or something really awkward with cheese curds. Something weird's <laughs> happening, like either way. And, and we use the word love. My love, my love for something has to change because of the object of my love. Our love for God has to change because of who he is. Michael Reeves puts it this way. The living God is infinitely perfect and overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. And so, and so we do not love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. You see what he's saying? Because God is holy and transcendent, the necessary response of love is a healthy fear. So, so here's the question you might be asking. How do I know the difference between a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear? How do you know the difference between a healthy fear of God and the unhealthy fear? Well, it's actually hard to define, but I think that maybe a good way to help clarify is to ask the question, what does your fear of God produce? What does the fear of the Lord produce in your life? Because I think here's what you're gonna see in the Bible. I think in the Bible, an unhealthy fear produces a distance from God. An unhealthy fear drives us away from God. An unhealthy fear causes us like Adam in the garden to want to hide from God, to want to cover ourselves up from God. An unhealthy fear causes us to want to distance ourselves and not hear from him like the Israelites. A healthy fear, I think when you look in the Bible, a healthy fear does the opposite. A healthy fear drives us towards God. It actually causes us to, it leads us to life change. It leads us to repentance. It actually increases our joy in the Lord. You know, I actually think you see this in this very passage. Did you guys notice what happens to Isaiah? Isaiah sees God in his holy transcendence, and what's his first response? He's terrified, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What's he saying? I think here's what's going on. When Isaiah met God for the first time, I think Isaiah didn't just meet God. I think Isaiah met Isaiah for the first time. When he saw God, and he saw himself in in reference point to a holy transcendent God, he understood who he was. And what was the first thing he recognized about himself and everyone else he knew? Here's what he recognized. I am a sinner who is in need of the grace of God. And the moment that he confesses this, I want you to notice, the moment he confesses his sin to God, the Bible says that the Lord forgives him. And then after he forgives him, Isaiah's response is, here I am, God, send me. My life is yours. It's entirely his fear leads him closer to God. A.W. Tozer wrote a, a phenomenal book called Knowledge of the Holy. I love what he said. He said this, the, great, the greatness of God rouses fear within us, but his goodness encourages us not to be afraid. To fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith. Because I believe that one of the things that we desperately need in our life is a healthy fear of the Lord. I think it's something that we need. For some of us, we find ourselves so, so driven by fear and anxiety. We're afraid of our health. We're afraid of our, for our food. And we're afraid about our future and our finances and the nation and our country and the world. And we're just afraid, afraid. And so, listen, some of those fears are understandable. Some of those fears might, may even be clinical. But I, I think that underneath some of them, quite honestly, might be what's driving those fears is actually a lack of fear. We have a diminished fear of the Lord. I think when we fear the Lord, it actually is the fear that drives out all other fears. And it causes us to reorder our fears in a healthy way. So when we come to the holy transcendent God, it reorders our fears. And then secondly, and quickly, it reorders our lives. It reorients our lives. So I want you to notice here in Isaiah, 
verse eight, the, the Bible's gonna tell us that one nanosecond after Isaiah has an encounter with the holy transcendent God and he's forgiven by this God, the Bible's gonna tell us that Isaiah is raising his hand and saying, God, I will go wherever you go and I will do whatever you ask me to do. God says, I need someone to go for me. Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. I'll tell you, the crazy thing is, Isaiah doesn't even wait to hear the job description. He just says, I'll go, I'll go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Here at Grace Church, you know what we call that? We call that your predetermined yes. You're giving God your predetermined yes. The answer is yes, what's the question? God, I'll do whatever you do. My life is yours. I'll go wherever you go. My whole life is oriented around you, my predetermined yes. So here's the question. How can you and I say what Isaiah said? How can you and I, like Isaiah, say to God, yes, here I am, send me? Here's what I believe. I don't think you and I can truly say what Isaiah said until we see what Isaiah saw. And what did he see? A holy and transcendent God. When we recognize the holiness of God and the glory of God, it reorients our lives. Now, one of the words that I love, I don't know if you guys noticed this, in the angels refrain, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But you notice there's another thing that they say at the end. They say the whole earth is full of his glory, his glory. This is such an important concept. The word glory, again, it might sound like a churchy word to some of us. The word glory is literally the Hebrew word kavod. The B, the B sounds like a V, it's kavod. And it literally means, so get this, it means weightiness or heaviness. It sounds weird to us. Like, what do you mean? God is weighty? God is heavy? What is that even talking about? Listen, here's what it means. I think this is the best way to understand the significance of God's glory. It's such a helpful illustration. This has been so, such a helpful illustration to me over the years. Think about this with me for a minute. Think about the solar system. In our solar system, what is it, what is it that determines the path of orbit that we see in our solar system? So in other words, why is it that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around? Or why is it that the moon revolves around the earth and not the other way around? The answer is this. We all know this. The answer is gravity. The reason that the earth revolves around the sun is because the sun has more, listen to this, gravity. It has more weightiness. It has more, it has more heaviness. It has more kavod. It has more glory. And the object that has lesser glory necessarily gives way to the object of greater glory. That's how that works. Listen, do you want to know an indication? I believe this is true. Do you want to know an indication that maybe you've never actually experienced the real God? Do you want to know an indication? Here's what I think. I think an indication that you've never experienced God for real is that God is lighter than you. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, here's some examples. When God is lighter than you, your ideas, your opinions carry more weight than his. They have more weight in your life than his. You take his word lightly. If God says something you don't like, you just dismiss it. He revolves around your desires and preferences. And so whatever you want, God is just behind you in that. You shape and you edit him. So if there's things you don't like about God or things you don't like about the Bible, you just reject those parts of him. He always affirms you. He affirms your views. He affirms your opinions. He affirms your political persuasions. He's always on your side. Your feelings outweigh his word. Your feelings are more true to you and they speak more truth to you than his words. God is lighter than you. 
Do you want to know an indication you've never experienced the true God? God has never challenged you, he has never changed you, and he has never offended you. But here's the problem with that, and I think we all know this. The problem is, is if I have a God of my own making, that means that he's only as strong and he's only as powerful as my imagination because he is a figment of your imagination. I love the way Evelyn Underhill put it. She said this, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. If we could reduce him down to our, our thinking, he would not be worth worshiping. How do you know you've actually encountered the true God? Here's how he's heavier than you. He's heavier than you. What do I mean? You begin centering your life around him. You are not the center of the universe. He is. Because he is, he is so glorious. His words are more trustworthy than your own. His truth is greater than your feelings. Your preferences start to bend and give way to him. He edits and he shapes you. You know, it's interesting. The Bible's gonna tell us that those of us who follow Jesus were called to live a holy life because he's holy. Some of us are like, what does that even mean to live a holy life? Well, can I tell you what it means to live a holy life? It means to live a life that's set apart. It means to live like this. That's what it means. It means that we live a life that is set apart for his purposes and set apart for his reasons. Ask the band to come up. And as they do, uh, I wanna end with this final thought and then we'll pray and we'll sing together. Some of you might be hearing all this and you might be thinking, okay, this is really, really helpful. What in the world does this have to do with Christmas? I thought it was a Christmas series. And so um, let me help tie this together because, because it has a lot to do with Christmas. I want you to know that in Isaiah chapter six, that one chapter later, you see something very amazing. In, chap- in Isaiah chapter six, you see that this holy God is seated on a throne. In Isaiah chapter seven, one chapter later, the same God who's seated on the throne makes a promise in Isaiah seven. It's a very famous promise. My guess is you've probably seen it on Christmas cards, Isaiah seven fourteen, And God makes a promise that he will come to us and he will come to us in the form of Emmanuel, God with us. The same God who was seated on the throne said that he was going to come to be with us, to dwell with us. I'll tell you something amazing. When you get to the New Testament of the Bible, we actually have a little bit further insight into what was happening in the book of Isaiah. Because in the gospel of John, we are told, look at this, this is crazy. Isaiah, he's talking about Isaiah 6. Isaiah said this because he saw, look at this, Jesus. Who is is the one that was seated on the throne in Isaiah's vision? The Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form. Before he came, he is seated on the throne in his glory. Isaiah spoke about him. He spoke about Jesus. Now, here's why that's so important. Here's what this has to do with Christmas. You guys, at Christmas, we need to understand that the baby in the manger, that that same Jesus is the king who's on the throne. It's the same guy. It's the same Lord of all. You know, Christmas can sometimes bring with it sort of a, in some ways, a comfortable vulnerability, right? There's something about the delicate approachability of a baby, which is what makes Christmas so amazing, that God came that close. But my, my, my fear is, my hope is, that we wouldn't lose sight of the transcendence that that baby in the manger, that he is also the king who sits on the throne. See, I think what happens is if we lose sight of God's transcendence, we end up approaching God too casually and too flippantly. I think what happens when we lose our sight of God's imminence is we end up approaching God dreadfully. 
But when we recognize that he is both transcendent and imminent, he is the king on the throne and he's the baby in the manger and he's the Lord on the cross, I think we end up approaching him worshipfully, worshipfully. And my hope is this Christmas is that we together could worship the God who came to be with us. Let's pray. Holy God of the universe, the transcendent creator of all. Thank you that you in all of your glory, in all of your majesty, in all of your power, in all of your might have displayed your goodness by lowering yourself to be with us. God, it's too amazing. It's too beyond comprehension for us in our finite minds to try to get a hold of eternal truths that are so far beyond our reach. But thank you that you have come to us, that we can know you, that we can follow you. <clears throat> the only appropriate response, I think, is to worship. It's just to worship. It's to join the chorus of the angels, to cry out that you are holy, that you are distinct, that you are different, and that you are glorious, that you are weighty, that you, that you are the one who you are the creator of all things and the creator of us, that our life revolves around you. So I pray that in these moments as we worship and sing, that we would be able to sing to you and that we'd be able to sing to each other these truths, that we would declare these things, not just as words to a song, but as truths that we believe and that we're anchoring ourselves in. So Jesus, we wanna say thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're close enough to see us, but you're powerful enough to save us. We praise you, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.